This week's episode is sponsored by Jagged Edge Productions and ITN Studios' Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2. Only in theaters, March 26th to March 28th. The suspenseful and thrilling sequel to last year's immense hit, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, amplifies the gore factor with ten times the number of kills to put fans both new and old at the edge of their seats. After Christopher Robin reveals their existence, Winnie the Pooh, Piglet, Tigger, and Owl land on the endangered species list as hard targets. Unwilling to hide in the shadows, the ultimate scream team embarks on a murderous rampage through the town of Ashdown to get their revenge on Christopher Robin, once and for all. So don't miss out, and mark your calendars to catch the limited engagement of Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey 2, only in theaters March 26th to March 28th. Tickets are available now. Get in, losers. This is the Lady Killers, a feminine rage podcast. I'm Jen. I'm Sammy. I'm Rocco. And I'm May. Our podcast is a tribute to the female identifying killers in horror and more. Each episode will feature us, your Supreme Court of female murderers, discussing our favorite lady killers from your Julias and Jennifers to your Carries and Christines. We'll tell her story, decide if it's good for her horror, and answer the most important question of all. Would we die for her? Join us on Thursdays as we pull on our sweaters, snatch our ice picks, sharpen our scissors, and honor the lady killers who live on the silver screen. No boys were harmed in the making of this podcast. Yet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm Lior Phillips, host of This Must Be The Gig. We're a weekly podcast that documents everything about the world of live music. Speaking with choreographers, costume and set designers, the people who run beloved venues and festivals, and, of course, speaking with musicians about that one gig that changed their lives. Get your peek behind the curtain at consequenceofsound.net, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Consequence Podcast Network. My friendship to all of you precludes my involvement with any one of you. But if you want to make love, then I do too. And I'll be right there behind you. Listeners, and welcome yet again to the Losers Club, a Stephen King podcast from the Consequence Podcast Network. You might know me as Rockin' Randall Colburn, but today you can call me Officer Colburn because you're under arrest. I'm the library policeman. No, I'm not actually. That's really horrible. And we're going to talk terrible. about why that's horrible as we get there. Uh, today, uh, we are in part three of our library policeman coverage, not library policeman coverage, our four past midnight coverage. Today, we're talking about the library policeman. The third story, uh, we've done previous episodes on the Langoliers and Secret Window, Secret Garden, the best of the collection. Just kidding. It's not good at all. Um, and then we're also next week going to touch on the Sundog, which is 
our little prologue to Needful Things, which is uh, one of our upcoming books. So thank you guys so much for listening. Uh, before we get started, I just want to encourage you to please leave us a review on iTunes, on Stitcher, on Facebook, wherever you leave reviews for podcasts. We really need the help because, man, people, they just can't stop with these with these four out of five reviews. And those are not cool. We do not want them. We want five out of five. If you have a negative opinion, um, take it to Psy King himself because he'll set you straight. Um, and then also please follow us on our socials, Facebook, social, and social, Instagram, uh, Twitter. I'm old. And uh, <laughs> we got fresh content, as I like to say, on all of our socials. So today we have a panel lined up, a very exciting panel. I'd say, you know me, Rock and Randall, uh, Officer Randall. And who is sitting across from me? Oh, this is Aisha. Brush the corn silk off your shoulder. <laughs> Hope you all get that. I get it. Good to have you back. It's so fun. What was the last book you were on? God. Uh, 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 was it It? No, no, no. It was after It. I'm blanking now, and I was just thinking about it. The one with... um. The writer. God, oh, never. Dark Half. Thank you. I don't know why I was blanking so hard. It's been a really long day. You guys have been awake since 4 a.m. So. Oh, I hear you. We've, uh, yeah, it's it's been a long day. And then we have another uh, we have another contributor to this fair podcast, but he's not in the studio. He is across the country, but through the magics of technology, we can still talk to him. Say hi. Hi, this is Dan Dirty Dave. Uh, <laughs> dirty Dan I, is more like it. Dirty, I, I, I was going to say Dirty Dan, but then I'm like, are they... Uh, are people going to get that reference right away? <laughs> dirty yeah, you don't want to. Um, you don't. I, you don't want to categorize yourself as dirty. Nobody wants that. Exactly. I don't want to convince people of, of lies because I'm very clean. Um, and and I also wasn't going to beat uh, Aisha's uh, wonderful um little preview pound cake. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for it. So yeah, yeah uh, this is kind of an interesting episode. I'm in a weird way excited to talk about it. Library Policeman is definitely not one of the more well known uh, King novellas. I'd say. Uh, mainly because it's never been made into a movie, and I think that sort of does distinguish it. And it's also part of, I think, what we've decided over the last few weeks is a fairly, um, you know, not top-tier King outing here uh, in terms of his novellas, Langoliers, Secret Window, Secret Garden. They were, for our panel of of losers, they were rough ones. But we've had fresh fresh people on every episode, haven't we? Like you guys, you and Dan and Aisha, you guys haven't been on previous Four Past Midnight ones, have you? No. No. Yeah, same. So uh, if you if you've listened to our Langoliers and Secret Window, Secret Garden, they're great ups and uh, they definitely struggled. Did you guys get a chance to read the first two in this collection? I had a sorry. I had a life. I could not do it all. I had to make sacrifices. I totally understand. And you're not missing much. Dan. (laughs) I I did because I'm trying to read like all the books as we as we go through them. And I got to say way worse than I remember it being as a kid. Same, like same. I remember I remember thinking Four Past Minute was really good and I'm surprised that the Langoliers is held in such high regard. I think that's a hot garbage piece, <laughs> piece of shit story. Now I'm um, excited to read it. It's well it's so funny because I feel like people in a weird way just have these warm memories of it because of the miniseries and yeah. but the miniseries is, is so bad. <laughs> Well, and, and it's funny too because I, I I was looking at some just some retrospective re- reviews and it's pretty I think like in contemporary times, it's pretty unanimously said that Four Past Midnight is not King's strongest. But I found so many reviews that were like, oh, except for the standout Langoliers. And I'm like, what are you talking about? I, I will say, I, I think, I don't know if both of you feel this way. Um, I do think the 
stories are ordered and getting worst to best for me. I mean, Mm. that doesn't mean I loved it as a collection. It's certainly no different seasons, but it it was, it was somewhat easy of a reading experience because it, it, it got smoother as it went along. That being said, I I think all these stories have issues. um, Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk about it. Um, So before we get started, let's uh, go around and sort of say how we first encountered the library policeman. Um, I have a pretty, I I think the main reason I wanted to be on this episode is because I have a very sort of visceral uh, moment with this story when I was young. So I'll, I'll go last because it's heavy. (laughs) Uh, Aisha, what? so you first encountered it with this reading. Is that correct? And what, uh, what edition are you reading? Oh, Let's see, because I borrowed this from either Justin or Mac, and I apologize in advance for the stated edition. <laughs> <laughs> I was taking it everywhere with me, so. Just oh, it so is. Know. I'm sure it is totally fine. You know, I know you always ask me this question, and I'm never prepared for this part. It is the 19, what is it, Signet 1990? Oh, you got Signet 1990? Mm. See, I got Signet, but it's a few years later. It's uh, and you're, what's the kind of cover of your four It's the, minute? basically a clock split four minutes past midnight yeah i have <laughs> mine is very funny it's 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 like hot pink oh my version little of it is skeleton arms <laughs> yeah and it's got <laughs> skeleton arms that uh are definitely set to four past midnight i kind of want your cover more <laughs> <laughs> this is the version that i read as a child oh, and okay. i'm very excited that i still have it dan what edition did you read Hey, look, I'm all first a dish all the way from now on. Uh, it's just no, pristine condition. I've, I've really, I've really, um, because Half Price Books is such a, an awesome institution here and, and around the country, but there's one right down the road from us. Um, and they have first editions, really cheap. I don't think they realize how expensive they could sell them for. I hope they're not listening and they jack up the prices on me. But I got a first edition, pretty pretty great shape, uh, Viking Four Past Midnight, which of course has the detailed, almost like Big Ben looking clock. And it's... Yep. Cracking open and there's, yeah. you know, I guess what a tear in time, whatever the fuck is in life. <laughs> well, I, guess, I guess all the stories in here have some sort of blurring of reality and time, right? That's, I guess, sort of the loose theme of them. So yeah, I think it's that makes sense. That. I um, actually like the artwork, artwork a lot mm. on it. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but what, what's contained therein is <laughs> what, uh, how, how did you first encounter the, these stories? Dan, did you read them when you were younger? I did. And it's funny. I think with library policemen, especially I, it was one of those things where I was just too young to really comprehend it because I, I knew there was going to be a really controversial, um, graphic bit of sexual violence just because I had read that about the book, um, Interesting. you know, just leading up to it, but I didn't remember it at all as a kid. Um, and I, and I, <laughs> I don't think it's like a thing where much like Sam, like I repressed it because it disturbed me. I think I just probably didn't really get what was going on. Um, it was, it was during my first big King stretch that I read it between like nine and 11. And, uh, I think I'd see my dad reading it. Um, the, honestly, what I really remember from it was, um, the drawing of the sun dog. That's kind of like the only, uh, outside of the Langoliers miniseries and secret garden or <laughs> secret garden, secret window later on, um, the film adaptation. Yeah. I really didn't remember a ton from like any of the stories. So re- it, it almost felt like I was reading this for the first time again. Th- this was the story. I think I also like remembered the least, like I just, I don't, rem- I don't remember the, um, the more terrifying elements of it didn't even strike me as something I remembered as a kid. So yeah, yeah. I guess I was a little bit too young for it. Yeah. But, uh, but, I was but curious I, how someone as a kid would w- read that and <laughs> yeah. like come through and be like, what's happening? I'm not going to get into it now, but yeah, that yeah. crossed and, my mind I mean, sometimes. It's, it's weird. Cause I'm, I'm usually like pretty lenient with, oh, I, you know, I think if you explain to your kids what's getting read and you know, they can handle it, it's fine. And so for me, it's not even like, Oh, it's too graphic. It's almost just like, I don't think you can comprehend it when you're a little kid, you know, like I, yeah. the same thing with that sex scene, it like it, I remember as a book reading it around the same age, but I don't remember a lot of the really graphic stuff from it just because I think that 
you're just not able to wrap your head around it. And quite, and also, especially in this one, because it's written kind of from the perspective of a kid who also doesn't really know what's going on. So, um, yeah. so yeah. But yeah, what about you, Randall? Yeah, it's it's like it's similar to yours, Dan. I I wasn't as young as you when I read it. I think I read this when I was probably twelve or thirteen, mm-hmm. and it really, really, really got me because I had no inkling going into it what it was about, what was going on, and a lot of it flew over my head when I was that young. But then, yeah, once we get to the scene, and um, I guess just like a basic warning uh, for our listeners, but I guess if you're listening to this episode, you've probably read the book, so you know what we're going to talk about. But there is um, a pretty intense scene of sexual violence. Against a child in this story, and it is something that we're going to be talking about. So, just so you know, uh, but the thing is, and we're going to talk more about the synopsis and break that down in a moment. But I guess just when I first read it, it's such a visceral memory for me. And honestly, I didn't remember much about the actual story. Uh, in retrospect, except for that one scene, which the way it's written is so intense and so visceral. And, um, and, and, and I have a lot of thoughts about that from, a, from this adult perspective, but reading when I was 12, 13, um, I remember sitting in my, in my bedroom and reading it and it was late. And I feel like my dad was right about to go to bed, but I felt so sick to my stomach after I read it, like genuinely sick. And I, and I, I didn't really know what I read because like you said, Dan, I, it wasn't something I was familiar with uh, that this kind of violence could be perpetrated on a child. It's not something that had been a part of my life or something I'd, I'd engaged with. And um, and so reading it, I didn't fully grasp what I'd read, and it really disturbed me. And it's written in such a way that I found very painful um, in, a, in a very sort of primal way. It really got to me. So I remember going downstairs to talk to my dad, <laughs> and I literally said to him, I was like, I just read a thing in this story. And it really, really, really disturbed me. And I tried to sort of explain it to him. And my dad, bless his heart, I love him. But, you know, he always hated me reading horror. Um, he's not like anti-horror, but he was always like, why do you read these blood and guts books? You know, why do you do this? Go play basketball, you know. And um, and uh, and I remember him, just his response. Like, I really wanted him at that time to engage with me about what I had read and talk to me about it. But I think he just wasn't comfortable doing that. And he basically just told me, this is why I tell you not to read these books. He's like, you're too young. Um, and yeah, and that wasn't the answer I wanted or needed at that time. And I kind of just finished the story. And then I remember, and this is just partly related, but I think I remember at that point really just wanting to be done with four past midnight. Um, especially cause I believe I was going to read needful things next and I was excited for that book. So, and then Sundog for me was a story that I just blew through because mm-hmm. I just wanted to be done with the book. So I actually feel like I, and we'll talk about that next episode, but I feel like I gave, I finally gave, um, Sundog, it's my first real reading this time around, however many years later. So, so yeah, but um, I'm going to kick us off just with a synopsis. Um, the ones that I'm finding are mostly extremely short uh, for it. In my Signet edition, I love how just how simple this is. The library policeman, you are forced you are forced into a hunt for the most horrifying secret a small town ever hid. Um, but all the uh, synopses in my edition uh, begin with you, which I find interesting. Um, and then this one that from Amazon just says, In Junction City, Iowa, a middle-aged businessman who returns his overdue library books is faced with a malevolent monster of a librarian, which sounds really stupid. You know, for me, it's just weird to hear this is a monster because I love the library and I was never afraid of it. And then I was reading this at one point on the train and I was telling uh, Michael about it. And I was like, and I got to that scene and I was just like, 
But you know, <laughs> as an adult, I kind of had an inkling towards it as I started to get more, like, drop more hints just because, like, I have friends who work within, like, sexual violence and yeah. domestic violence. So you kind of, like, learn to read the signs. And mm-hmm. even though he kind of did it very, and we can go into this later, but clumsily, yeah, like, it kind of, I, I think as an adult, like, if you knew what to look for, mm-hmm. it kind of gave you the sign. I'm like, oh, it's going towards this. Is it going to? And then it was like, bam. It was, so Yeah, it's interesting. And so I guess this, I'll give sort of my broad uh, description because those don't really say much about it. But basically, it boils down to Sam Peebles. He is our he is our uh, protagonist. Basically, he has to give a speech in front of the Rotary Club. He's really nervous about it. He goes to the library uh, because somebody recommends to him that he get these books that have like jokes in them and sentimental anecdotes and things that can help you write a speech, knock it out of the park. And in doing so, he goes, he gets the books and he meets this strange librarian who gives off kind of a weird, uh, malevolent vibe uh, in her sort of uh, matronly way. And it's kind of a fun little scene. But then, um, but then uh, you know, she very aggressively says, you know, you better uh, return these on time or the library policeman will come get you. And he's like, and that rings a bell for him, but he doesn't really know why. And, uh, and then sort of as it goes on, he forgets about the books. The speech goes really well. And then we learn that he's, um, that he sort of has this weird friendship with, um, her name's Naomi, correct? Naomi, Sarah. Yeah, she has two different names, Naomi and Sarah, and we'll learn why. But uh, basically, she is an old friend, and then we find out that she is somebody who leads AA meetings. She's a recovering alcoholic. And uh, and so she kind of tells him, oh, that woman you met in the... She kind of hints to him, this woman you met in the library wasn't right. The mm. She's not the librarian. And he's like, that is strange. And then in trying to hunt down the books to return them, uh, he realizes that this... Uh, homeless man who is also a recovering addict who picks up his garbage or his recycling and uh, basically has accidentally grabbed the books and they are like in the dump now. So he's like, what do I do? Um, And in the process of that, um, things start to get dark. He is visited by a very huge hulking monster of a man who beats him up. And this is the library policeman. And it's about got to get the books back. Got to get it back. But it turns into this whole sort of rumination on an old evil that uh, once inhabited this town. You learn that the woman that he met in the library was actually, uh, you know, this woman who actually had murdered children years and years past. And then it turns out that she's not just a, a killer. She's so much more. She's so much more. And guess who has the answers? Dirty Dave himself, the homeless Dirty man. Dave. <laughs> Dirty Dave. Dirty Dan. Dirty and Dan. so. Um, Got him all. This is really happy. <laughs> I'm just really happy we finally got a King story about uh, malevolent evil lurking in a small town. Like, I we know, right? I've gotten that before. <laughs> Man, there are so many it vibes in this, too. Um, That's why I was, oh, yeah. I had so many questions. Lots of it. So, so yeah, so I guess, like, um, and I guess in a way that sort of is a natural lead into the hook of this story. Ah, yes. Don't you see? Don't you see how clear it all is? Not only can you see the future, you can I can change it. You can change it exactly. Which is, I think, about suppressed trauma is really kind of what's going on here. And um, I think one of the things that's really interesting to me about this story is the way that um, it takes sort of a very childlike idea, this idea of the library policeman. And King has said, he says in the intro, at least in my version, that this whole story was kind of birthed out of um, his son, Owen, uh, now acclaimed novelist. Uh, well, acclaimed is 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 touchy. But um, he basically brought up something about the library policeman and King 
was like, oh, that's an idea I haven't heard in a while. And he started to kind of think over the idea a little bit. But what also I think really stands out in here is um, themes, obviously, of addiction. And I think of of processing trauma as a means of coping with addiction. I think all of this, too, has a lot to do with just, and I mean, when you look at the book, Time, yep. like the idea of time, and there was something that they said, and it's in my version in the like prologue or introduction before you get to any of the fourth books, um, and it's like page 12 in that part, or X to II, if you're looking at it that way. <laughs> yeah. Uh, time has a funny plastic quality, and everything that goes around comes around. And when you think of it in terms of Sam Peebles, like he's become the successful businessman. He ha- you has no idea why he's never been to the library in such a long time. And it's kind of that idea as an, as an adult or over time, as we're growing, our memories of certain things change or warp or become corroded. And we kind of have either put this sh- plastic sheen on certain things we don't want to remember or a black hole for like, as I'm so sorry, dad, but my father <laughs> told me that my mother was bootylicious. That is currently a black hole that I only open the door to sometimes. So, you know, it's funny. Like I, I, I got that theme a lot with the library policeman was like, with trauma and like yeah. getting past that, how people deal with it in certain ways over time and how the people around us affect the way we get over it. Because yeah. Sam didn't have any friends either, right? right? I think the two people that he was with yeah. were gone. Yeah. Well, he also, I don't think, had had um, much of a romantic life either, mm-hmm. which obviously ties back to what happened to him as a kid. Um, yeah, I think, I think this being a – I mean it's funny because the hook on the surface seems like, oh, yeah, libraries can be scary. Ha-ha. But, yeah, I think it really is about – time and, and repression, like, like you both are saying. Um, and I don't know, I think, I think that metaphor kind of works in this, that there I'll, I'll hold off on saying what doesn't work in it, but I think like overall as a concept, I, I think it's actually pretty interesting. I'm, I'm almost more interested in that than the logistics of, of what the force of evil is in this and like the, the shades of it and everything we've seen before that. But like, I don't know, what do you, what do you guys think of like the hook or the metaphor? I mean, does, does that work for you? Yeah, I'd say it works. I mean, in a broad sense, I think that this is a very, uh, you used the word clumsy earlier. I think that is a really great phrase for it. Um, because to me, this is a story like, uh, I guess in a broad sense, when I really think about four past midnight as Mm -hmm. a collection, this was one of the first things King wrote after he got sober. And, you know, The Dark Half was kind of his book coming, his first, like, sober novel. But these stories, too, were uh, were written during that time, and they were written during a period of writer's block. Like, he basically had writer's block for a year. There was talk about how he worked on Insomnia, a book that would come out much later, for four months and then give up on it. Because he's like, it's unpublishable. I can't work on it. Mm-hmm. And he said that everything that he was writing fell apart in his hands like tissue paper. And when I look at these stories... What I see is is like this this almost determination mm. to write something and to maybe write something that would please his readers because his last few books um, he had not been doing horror in the way that he had in it mm. since this like people didn't like Dark Half is horror but people also found it uh, a little too depressing and a little too violent you know where and then um, and then uh, Tommy Knockers was kind of a dud it's like a, and that was science right. fiction and it wasn't what people wanted from King so these four stories were are all horror kind of in their own way. But they don't feel like early King. They feel like him. Like they don't, you know, they have, there's that old saying, it's like writing is 10% inspiration, 90% 
perspiration, right? <laughs> These stories feel like a hundred percent perspiration. It did feel like, <laughs> to be honest, now that you tell me like the history behind it, I because I kind of got this feeling of like very clunky King, yeah, and the sense of that there are certain parts that annoy me in most of his writing where yeah. he draws things out a little bit too long. Yes. But in this case, and in Sundog too, I was like, oh my god, will you just get to the point? Get like, to the point. I was so tempted so many times to like skip a few pages oh, and just like I get hear to, you. and just some of the writing or some of his uh what's the word i want to use metaphors or ways of explaining certain things i was like okay i i understand time wise i don't i don't know all the references but there were just so many things where i just cringed and put the yeah. book down and yeah. walked away but i get but there were certain things that kept drawing you in were that those certain king moments that i was like okay i love this little bit of fiction or yep. horror and description where it's like drawing me in further and i want to keep reading and then you get to that clunky part again yeah like, ah. no well, i i agree 100 percent. what were you say in? that I, I think that all the stories in Four Past Minute, and once again, li, you know, Library Policeman and Sundog, I enjoyed a lot more than the first two. But I think all of them can be could be a hundred pages. Like oh, it, yeah. it's funny that they're all these like novellas. I'm like, no, I think these are <laughs> long short stories. At the be- at, at Randall, you and I were texting about that one part where um, where Sam first meets the librarian. Yeah. And they just go on for like three pages about like horror novelists. And she's like, oh, that Peter Straub fellow. And yeah, Stephen King. And you're like, are you name dropping? And and the the Sundog, the same thing happens with with the like the history of cameras. You're like, Jesus Christ, like, what are you? I I got it. You're smart. It, yeah, I got to like deflate everything when they get to this. That's almost where it feels to me like King almost like where he's. That's where I say like the persp- oops, sorry, where the perspiration aspect of it comes in is is because it seems sometimes that he's trying to force a scene to move forward. And the only way he has to do it is to like dig into some weird bit of minutia, some history, mm-hmm. some knowledge that or so a real life thing that he can use to pull him forward in the narrative. And yeah, it just but it also just makes me laugh because like, yeah, there's that bit when he's talking to the librarian and she's like, well, this new novel by Robert McCann and it's called Swan Song and the kids are just reading it up. But oh, it's bad, you know, and it's just kind of. Of like it's okay. like dude we get it you like Robert McCammon um but it's very funny to me so but yeah there but I think in terms of time and what you're saying and 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 the way that you know we change as we get older and the way that um you know things from our childhood we can repress because of the memories they bring up one of the things that I found really striking in library policeman was uh the way he emerged after his encounter with Ardelia uh in the in the library where mm-hmm. she made him feel like a child again which is I think something he doesn't mm-hmm. experience because he doesn't have a lot of friends he doesn't have a lot of connections he focuses on work he's a very sort of simple dude mm-hmm. he doesn't like indulge in the things that he used to love, you know, and uh, there's a line in um, chapter six, uh, 438 of the Signet edition. Um, and I really like this, but uh, it says halfway to the library, an idea suddenly struck him. It was so obvious he could hardly believe it hadn't occurred to him already. He had lo- he had lost a couple of library books. He had since discovered they had been destroyed. He would have to pay for them. And that was all. It occurred to him that Ardelia Lortz had been more successful in getting him to think like a fourth grader than he had realized. When a kid lost a book, it was the end of the world. Powerless, he cringed beneath the shadow of bureaucracy and waited for the library policeman to show up. But there were no library police. And Sam, as an adult, knew that perfectly well. And um, yeah, I guess that for me is something that I find interesting is when someone can, you know, by way of mode or behavior, transfer you back to the, you know, making you feel mm. like that again is a kid. And that's clearly not a feeling he's 
uh, comfortable with. And so what I kind of love is, is that sense of, you know, call it emasculation, uh, in a way, like, cause we do find out that Ardelia is a very Pennywise kind of character. She can mm-hmm. manifest something Certain that you're scared of. You yeah. And what, what, you know, what you're afraid of. And I think it's, it's really clever in this really cool way of, uh, of her of her doing that as a means of triggering a really scary thing within him. So that's something that I found really striking about it. Um, thematically, what else would you say stood out to you, Dan, or you, Aisha? I'm trying to think. Yeah, I mean, yeah, just repression, sexual abuse. Like, I mean, I'll, I don't know. It's interesting because he, I think he talks about about this in the intro also that that you all had already mentioned. Um, this idea of the passage, the blurry passage from uh, childhood to adulthood, um, which which once again he devote a lot more time and I think good energy to that in it. But I think that there's like a shade of that here. Um, yeah, I, I think that I think that's about it for me. I mean, I don't think it's as well. I don't know. It's weird. It's deep and it, 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 I was about to say I don't think it's his deepest work, but I'm like, well, no, that's not true. I think I think the depth just gets lost in some of the the clunkiness you mentioned already. Once again, I think if this was. 100 pages i i oh i would have flown through him yeah Yeah, and it would have been good (laughs) yeah for me i think just like the the general idea of addiction and the way he writes about it it's very clear-eyed you know Mm -hmm. and it's it's almost didactic but in a way i don't mind that uh because clearly he was processing his own sobriety at the time and he i think he does an interesting job of relating it to trauma within here there's a page on 557 of the or uh, a section on 557 of the signet edition where he's talking this is near the end of the story but he's talking to uh naomi and they're kind of just talking about what it is to be sober and so um I just thought this was really nice. She says, are you asking me if quitting drinking was an act of bravery? And he says, I don't know what I'm asking, but I think you're in the right neighborhood. At least I don't need to ask about fear. I know what that is. Fear is an emotion which encloses and precludes change. Was it an act of bravery when you gave up drinking? And she says, I never really gave it up. That isn't how alcoholics do it. They can't do it that way. You employ a lot of sideways thinking instead. One day at a time, easy does it, live and let live, all that. But the center of it is this. You give up believing you can control your drinking that idea was a myth you told yourself and that's what you give up the myth you tell me is that bravery and he says of course but it's sure not foxhole bravery and um and I guess that whole idea to me is interesting because I think he's relating that to the ways that we feel like we can control the way we process our trauma, you know, and obviously we can control the processing, but I think that to act as if we um, can just simply squash it in the same way that we can just squash uh, an addiction is not that simple. Right. And there is this sort of, you know, as she puts it, sideways thinking. And that's what I think is an interesting um, kind of moral that comes out of this. And like I said, there is a sort of a didacticism to it, but uh, where it's almost a little too like let me spell everything out for you but at the same time um in a way that works because it feels very earnest and i think that maybe what kind of won me over in the end of this and i like that this story has a happy ending where you know at the end we find out that you know uh like this demon has sort of latched itself onto Naomi mm. in this epilogue and then they get rid of it. They're able to like pull it from her. Right. And, um, is this like the only one in the four that's like, has a pretty good happy ending. Cause Sundog does not. Sundog so. has a really weird ending, <laughs> yeah, which we'll so, get to in the we'll next episode. Next episode. But I just, I'm curious if the other ones, is this the only one that he kind of chose to take a happy ending? Uh, I actually yeah, think Langoliers is pretty happy. Yeah. Well, Langoliers has, dies, I haven't but... watched it since I was a kid. Yeah. They, <laughs> well, like, the funny thing, and they talked about this on the episode about the movie, <laughs> oh, yeah. but 
the end of the movie ends with literally like there everyone's like back. Some, pe- some people have died, but like uh, everyone's back and they all hold hands and they run through the airport and then they jump in the air and then it freezes on them and it's oh, the credits. God, and they actually go, they go, come on. All right. Yeah. <laughs> Quintessential, was that 90s? Yeah, that was 90s. I was going to say, that sounds like a quintessential 90s movie. Yeah, I feel like you and I used to send that clip to each other, Dan. (laughs) Yeah, we used to. I showed it to Susan, like, out of context. She's like, what the fuck is this? And uh, And then Secret Window has, the story, I feel like, has a happy-ish ending because... Okay. It, but like the film has a much darker ending, which the That's funny, the, one I've seen. the funny, it, yeah. <laughs> see, the film people hate it. I remember when I saw it, I kind of liked it because I liked it better than the book because I mm-hmm. hated the book. But um, but it's still not good. And so um, so yeah, I'm actually very glad that we don't have film adaptations to discuss of these because a, I don't think anybody needs a film adaptation of the of the Library Policeman. Um, and Sundog is, I think, a little too rooted in 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 almost weirdness and weird horror, which we'll talk about. But uh, so let's move on to talk just briefly there's not much to say about structure and format but we're gonna just take a moment to see what we have to say about that Hello, welcome to your favorite category, structure and format. Um, <laughs> the only one without a fun name. <laughs> well, this does. This has. Uh, I know this one is funny to me because it has what I think is my least favorite King um, crutch, which is he loves to write. Uh, long, long, long chapters where people tell stories, mm. but the then, part. yes, yeah. and where they tell stories, but they remember every scrap of dialogue exactly as it happened. Like, and nobody they, does that in real life. I know <laughs> they tell it like it's King writing the scene out, but then he couches it all in dialogue. <laughs> That's true. And there's so And then many- they all go on side tangents within the stories. Yes. And you're like, okay. <laughs> Where did I so I think that's like my number one takeaway with structure and format is like, and he did, but the thing is he does it again in the Sundog mm-hmm. where it's like these long, long stories where it's like literally the person telling it a dot. It's like, you know, if you're listening to an audio book and you've got the, the guy doing all the voices <laughs> like all the dialects and everything. And, um, and yeah, so I think that that's kind of my number one takeaway, but uh, what did you guys think? Did you think it was more of like straightforward uh, for the most part, like pretty clear eyed language here? He doesn't mess around. He doesn't do too many of his like flourishes in this story. I'd feel like, I feel like for me, every time I read it, except for maybe a few books or was it um, the drawing of the three? Yeah. It chugs, at the beginning, it just yep. takes a minute to get, and I'm like, okay, okay, I know it's going to be good. I just have to, I mean, it's not always good, but I know there's <laughs> going to be something good in there if I just keep going. And I, it's sometimes a struggle for me to start a King book, but then it's like, once I get in there, there's a certain point in the book for me that he'll, he'll write something just right, or yeah. it'll catch my eye or, and it'll draw me in and keep me like reading further. And I'm like, okay, now I see where this is going. I yeah. like this. And then he'll surprise me or something like that. But then he'll get caught. So we've already discussed my, my qualms <laughs> with his writing. But <laughs> I think in this story, I it's moved pretty that quick. moment for me was like when he goes to the library the first time. Because I think that scene with him and Ardelia in the library that first time, and when he kind of goes in the children's section mm-hmm. and sees the creepy posters, that yes. kind of stuff really re- freaks me out. Little Red um, Riding Hood. Yeah. Simple Simon. Yeah, that's like the stuff where, I, that's where my cemetery lies, um, is I dig that. But what did you think, Dan? What did you think about the way this story was written? 
Yeah, I, I, I think you're right on the money with the the information dumps being the only detraction. Um, yeah, I think everything else was fine for me. Like, mm-hmm. it, I mean, it's pretty front to back linearly. I almost wonder because I like the way that Sam remembers what happened to him as a kid because it's not told. It's almost like the memory yeah. comes back to him. Mm-hmm. And I know, and I know it would be hard to do that for Dirty Dave's scene just because he has to get that information to, uh, to Sam and Sarah. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I also wonder how important all that information is. Right. You know I mean? I well, think that's I mean, a, King, yeah. King does that all the time, just like over explaining mm-hmm. something that maybe doesn't need to be explained. Like I'm, I'm with the, when the library policeman shows up at his house, I'm kind of with, I, I'm just with it being like, okay, that's the library policeman. He's there because of the fine, you know? Yeah. Um, and then, and then later on we can find out that it's this sort of personification of what Sam went through as a kid. But yeah, the, the, the scene with the, the, I mean, the Dirty Dave scene, it actually was kind of easy to get through because I think Dirty Dave is kind of a funny character and he yeah. just has some like weirdo one liners that like yeah. were bad, but also made me chuckle kind of. I've <laughs> got one in pound for pound cake that I'll, I'll say for that. But um, so it, it, it was like easy to get through, but I totally agree where at a certain point you're like, wait, how the fuck long has he been talking with the <laughs> I know. Um, those things always crack me up, but I do agree, Dan. I think that. That the scene where Sam processes his trauma, I think, mm. could have happened in a similar info dump. And I'm glad that it doesn't. I'm glad that it's it's written in sort of a dream sequence right. because he has it when he's on the That's plane. the thing. It's like he has the ability to have these like well-detailed but not overly detailed yep. moments. And it's like, can you not stick to that the whole time? Yeah. That would be great yeah. for me. But um, I mean, because then I, f- I wouldn't mind if it was like a longer story if there was more of that kind of writing and less of like knowledge dump on me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah. Any other thoughts on, on structure or shall we move into uh, heroes and villains? Do it. I'm going to have to kill this fucking clown. Welcome to the Losers Club, asshole! <laughs> so what do we think of Sam? He's kind of just a normal guy. I, I like Sam. <laughs> I do, too. <laughs> I do, too. He actually... Um, so he, once again, he, he has surprising complexity because I kind of like it first. He's just this seemingly just this semi cranky bachelor. I like I, yeah. love, I love all those things of like and it's funny because this actually has a much darker implication later on of why he doesn't like the library. But I like that when he first gets the library, like, oh, when he first saw the library, the first thing he thought was like, oh, what a dump. <laughs> he's almost, he, he almost has this Homer Simpson quality about him that that makes him really likable to me. Like he's I like that he's not super savvy and he's just kind of a normal dude. Um, I think sometimes when King tries to make the everyman character like with Ben Mears or someone, yep. they come off as a little too like too good at everything. You know, yep. I like Sam to me actually feels real. So, yeah, I'm a. I'm a, and, and then once we find out what did happen to him, that all rings really true to me, and it kind of explains why he's the way he is. So yeah, I'm a big. I was a big. I was a big fan of Sam. Yeah, <laughs> I enjoyed him in the beginning when like he had the phone call with who was it from the the Rotary Club who called him. Oh, and I he can't just, remember his name, but I can't yeah. remember his name. But his whole internal dialogue, because I know God knows how many times I've had that internal dialogue where someone's asked you to do something, and I was like, I can relate to this. Yes, I, I mean, over there were points where Sam, and it, maybe it's me as a female as opposed to be a male, where I was like, is this just. And I oh, got it. And it goes to something that happened in Sundog, but I won't get into that. But it's just the kind of thing of like, this is how a man talks. And I was like, mm-hmm. okay. And I feel like sometimes King kind of beats you over the head with like, this is how a woman thinks and this is how a man thinks. But of course, this writing was what, 1980s, 1990s. Yeah. So I forgive him for in that sense. But there's just times where I'm like, 
Yeah, Sam. Okay, cool. Uh. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he's kind of like, uh, I agree, though, Dan. It's like, I feel like these everyman, like even like a Stu Redman from The Stand or Ben Mears is a great example. But his, his characters tend to be, you know, if not... Um, if not popular, they tend to be sort of, um, like savvy is a good word, Dan, but also kind of like always right. You know what I mean? And, and, and almost like they're always like very handsome and very, uh, cool. And there's like this quality where they're a little bit smarter than everybody else. And I didn't get that from Sam. I got that he was, um, kind of a weird recluse and yeah. He's like a dope a little bit too. Yeah. He's kind of a dope. Yeah. Cause yeah, I think. Stu Redman and Ben Mears and guy. I mean, and I like those characters also, but they're they're almost kind of hunks in a way, you know. Yeah. <laughs> like not. <laughs> I use that word so much, but yeah. Yeah, which I think works. So, um, and then yeah, and I think like by making him so unassuming and also you know allow still giving him a vulnerability that that I think once we do learn what happened to him, you know it. it I feel like it, it really works because it allows you to view his past sort of reclusive and or awkward, socially awkward behavior in ways that um, I think resonate on a different level. It changes the way that you look at the character because he starts to make a lot more sense to you. And that's like a cool feeling when you're reading something. So how about uh, Naomi slash Sarah? Sarah being the name she uses when she uh, when she works with the um, the uh, hey, recovering alcohol mm-hmm. addicts that she works with. So uh, what, what about that character? character worked for you or didn't work for you i feel like sarah naomi however you want to call her was too too was too flat for me yeah she's pretty flat yeah i mean i tried to get like she i saw where he was trying to go and it's just like this i feel like this is the problem i had with uh liz and dark half Mm -hmm. and just you you have this woman who could potentially like she has moments of clarity almost where she drops some knowledge on sam but then the rest of the time, she's just kind of like this outer floating figure that's just there to be a piece of ass for him to look at <laughs> or like, you know, it just it, it, I feel like and I can't fault King on it because he's not a woman. But like, I feel like his female roles always lack for me in some way. Yeah, I think for me, she she clearly represents a lot of ideas that he wanted to bring out, especially about addiction, memory, sobriety. She serves as sort of the vessel for bringing a lot of that out. And also someone that, and that is exactly the kind of person who can pull him out of the darkness that Mm. he's been living in. But at the same time, he has to sort of process all that in a, in a woman who is both like quote unquote, uh, like she's presented as very virginal and innocent. And she's also, it, he talks about how hot she is, like a lot, <laughs> and then she's also this beacon of wisdom for him to help him overcome. But his then she trauma. has this dark side, and it's like I, she, he made her multifaceted, but at the same time, just like just dulled her. Yeah, and I think, and I saw, and I liked what he did with the sobriety thing, and made her kind of that person who has like the trauma of being an addict, not just Dirty Dave, like because it extends to all genders, whatever. But it just. I wish he would have gone more into her. And I think maybe I wonder if it's because there's like a a ledge or a line he'll go to in talking about his own sobriety at that time. You know what I mean? And maybe that's why he didn't push her character a little bit more to fill her out. Well, yeah, that's my thing. I agree with you 100 percent because you don't you know that she is a recovering addict, but you never see 
what that side looked like, mm. you know, when she was an addict. Like, you, there is this dark side to her, but I feel like we never really see that. We hear her reflecting on it and reflecting on um, overcoming it mm. and how yeah. hard that is, but we'd never really get a sense of, like, what her life looked like mm. before that, or at least one that, you know, has substance and meat right. to she it. She doesn't seem like she's really truly struggling until, yeah. like, she gets the Ardelia monster on yeah. her. Yeah. You know, that's her moment of weakness. I agree. Uh, how about you, Dan? What do you think? Yeah, I agree with both of you. Um, I think too, and it's not just the flatness for me, but everything she does is, is to service other characters. Most of the time, men too. I think all the time, men. Um, and it's once again, which would, that would not be a deal breaker for me if if that her own addiction didn't feel like just a plot device. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And we don't, don't get to see it. And then they have this weird thing too with her name. And that's that's this weird point of mystery that I think is just there to divert Sam a little bit. It just feels very strange to me. Yep. And then they say, too, they're like, what do they say? Wait, so because her, her, her actual name is Not, Naomi, right? Yep. I think Sarah's her middle name. Uh, yeah, and but then, she goes by that, say, yeah. And don't they say something like, like, oh, an angel named Sarah or yeah. something? It's so silly. <laughs> and, and Sarah's and a biblical like, name, too, so of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and it's just, I mean, and like, there's nothing objectionable as far as like, oh, I hate reading when Sarah's on the page. But yeah, it's, mm-hmm. I, I, th- I think especially this phase in this career, it's King, King has some really memorable uh, female characters, but I don't think it's a strong suit, especially in the 90s. We, uh, it's funny because we're actually, man, you get Annie Wilkes and we're about to get to uh, uh, Rose Matter and Gerald's mm-hmm. Game and yeah. Lars yeah. Playboy, which I think corrects that a little bit. And I, I could be wrong. I guess we'll see when we get to it. I think that was a conscious effort on his part to, to you know, do something else than than what he's doing here. Oh, I absolutely! It's a, um, it's a novella that you, you know you're you're not going to get like a Carrie White or something. Mm-hmm. But um, yeah, she was just a little a little mad for me. I, I mean, I, honestly, and I, I'm going to get such shit because I'm like one of the only people who loves who actually likes this book. Uh, I don't I don't even think she's as interesting as like Bob Bobby and the Tommyknockers is. Yeah. You know? dude, uh, I like that book, and I was shit on very hard yeah. on this podcast. <laughs> so I, I, it's your turn. I, 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 it, it, it's the only one I'm reading out of order just because I it was during school and I, I didn't have time to finish it when when y'all did that episode and it's also 800 pages <laughs> yeah it's long. I'm, I'm rereading it and it's I'm on page 181 and I like everything about it so far well like, no man, I'll know. say that was something that we all agreed on is like the first 200 pages are really good and then yeah. um and then it goes crazy I I like where it goes but uh I I would love for you and Mel to have a chat when you're done with it because man should, yeah. it is it is a it, her opinion on it is wild and I fully Ooh. support it but it is uh it is is torrential some might say I held off on listening to that episode because I want to I want to finish the book first but uh, yeah, it's a I good one it's one of the more contentious episodes i'd say yeah i figured but anyway hey hey we're not here to talk about tommy knock <laughs> well let's about talk about it dirty, always circles back. let's talk about dirty dave what do you say uh dirty dave to me i think is a character that i felt started off kind of character caricature esque mm. you know uh at first i thought that he was a little bit of um i don't know king's cartoony idea of what a homeless person was like but i think that he did a good job as it went on of of giving him a lot of depth and obviously that happens when you do a huge info dump with him but you know i think he makes him really likable and I, I i totally believe sort of the bond that forms between him naomi and sam i find it actually i found it to be if not rushed at least a little bit impactful mm. um and he's a likable character he's interesting um i do kind of you know it is funny to me like the whole concept of like somebody being um sort of uh what's the word i'm looking for like destitute uh 
you know, and kind of like shunned in a community, not shunned, but like on the bottom rung of a community Shun- when some years before, yeah, when some years before he was apparently doing just fine. Right. You know what I mean? I'm sure that happens, but there is sort of like the sense of when he starts talking about when he met Ardelia in his old life and how, how well established he was and the whole kind con- and, and, you know, they do, they go to pains to show um, how she accelerated his alcoholism right. and all this stuff. But at the same time, the, the depths to which he's fallen from that point to me still feels a little bit exaggerated mm. um, but at the same time I find him um, I, I like how integral he becomes to the story he and I like the small awesome. cast that we have here I mm. like that it's just these three for the most part and then we have our villain you know I mean with King sometimes even in um, Langoliers there's so many characters you know and uh, so I like these I like that uh, that about Sundog and this and even Secret Window to a degree it's, it's these nice tight casts and that's that's nice for King sometimes so uh, Dirty Dan thoughts on Dirty Dave uh, wait, I guess, I guess he, I, I thought my name was Dave for a second. Yeah, I know I, can't, I promise I'm not being lazy. Like, you know, I talk because I, I keep going like, oh, I totally agree. Uh, but no, I do. I, I think when I first, when we first meet him, and also too, it's like he's at like a train yard. And, and he's, he's, he's hanging with, out with he, his two friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah well, his two friends. I will say, although I do, I do think Tim, uh, Stephen King gives Dirty Dave a lot of integrity and, and um, honor and, and depth. His two friends, not so much. Yeah. <laughs> That's where he indulges his, like, uh, his bluer side with those characters. Yeah. What's his name? What's the one thing? Lukey or something? Right. <laughs> and he loves Slim Jims. Slim Jims. <laughs> he, loves, he loves Slim Jims. And then King actually describes him drawing with his tongue stuck out the side of his mouth. Like a <laughs> I was like, Jesus Christ. So when, when, when that was the introduction we got, I was like, oh man, where are we going with this? But then, <laughs> but then when, when Dave actually, um, he gets kind of disturbed when Sam starts bringing up everything. I think from then on, we, we start to see a lot more of him. Uh, um, and then his friends come back to his funeral at the end and do some more clownish. I think because of how he's portrayed just in those first few pages, I was picturing him as like, I forget the actor's name, but he's, He's in like road trip. He's like the guy who smokes weed. The old guy who smokes weed with his dog and stuff. Oh like, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. That actors are like, oh, you know. And, and then, <laughs> as, which made it hard as it went al- as I went along. So I'm like, oh no, I think he's actually deeper than that. Um, and and I actually think he gives a pretty realistic uh, depiction of alcoholism. And yeah, mm-hmm. why would you why you would keep getting driven to something like that? So yeah, yeah I mean, Dirty, Dirty Dan is a big fan of. Dirty <laughs> Dan. How about you, Aisha? Double D's. Double uh, D's. <laughs> Uh, sorry guys <laughs> sorry um so i to be honest dave was probably like my favorite character because he started out like you guys said totally like a caricature it was just like this old drunk dude who came in first of all i had a problem with them letting like a homeless person into their house i was like that's just is that a small town thing yeah um but i i liked dave he kind of grew on me and his friendship with them kind of felt fast a little bit with Sam but it made sense because like trauma brings people together of course and his story while it was it went long I got a real good sense of like Ardelia of him like Mm -hmm. the kind of slow progression it gave you just so much in there and Dave the jokes for me (laughs) and that's in my pound cake and some some other things but there's I can't wait for Dave (laughs) there's one line from Dave that is going to make an appearance in pound cake. Like yeah. maybe, maybe you both have I don't, I hope you have the same one I do. Cause I wrote it down and I took a picture and <laughs> like, just to make sure I didn't lose it. Um, and to wrap up this section, uh, maybe just some basic thoughts about Ardelia as a villain. 
I kind of like her as, I don't know, I guess like there's a part of me that likes the idea of sort of the buttoned up librarian as like demon, you know, monster. Mm-hmm. That's just, it's, it's to me kind of a fun, campy novel kind of idea. Um, no pun intended with novel there, <laughs> but uh, I don't know. I just thought it was kind of neat and I thought it was a fun spin on like the, I don't know, like turning a librarian into kind of a, uh, a Yoshi type, um, like weird monster with a giant beak or whatever, <laughs> like the way that that monster sort of evolved. Oh yeah, with the little sucker thing. Yeah, the that sucker, comes out like the pro- the, yeah. the, probis- yeah. the proboscis. Yeah, I had thought so many things. I thought about drawing them out because, like, I it sounded so weird. Yeah, but also like a yeah. Let me not go off topic. Um, Ardelia was great for me. Yeah. I like the. She made me think of Ms. Trunchbull. Oh a yeah, bit. from when, uh, Matilda. Yeah, yeah, just like oh, the yeah. the kind of bulking like force yeah but uh i love the little interplay between him and and sam or between her and sam in the library like right at the end before he leaves it's just like tit for tat i liked her little comebacks i liked her when she was like the the glorious hottie that was hanging out with dave Mm -hmm. yeah i'm down with ardelia down with it dan i uh yeah same thing i mean once again i i i like it when it's just that trope of like the 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 button up librarian who turns out to be monstrous. And yeah, I can get behind her being kind of this siren like figure. I get a little confused. The more we hear about her, um, just with like the sucking people's fear and the Mm -hmm. energy and all that. And then also, because I guess she's, so the library policeman is what she either, she's taking the form as for Sam or it's some vision she's able to create for Sam. I kind of get that. But then at the end, it's like, she what, is she trying to possess Sam or something? It's I, I, weird. It got, yeah. Got, as much as I... does that, man, with yeah. his monsters. Like, it kind always of hops around. As much as I like the character, there's way too much mythology. Mm-hmm. Like, that, yeah. like, the whole Dave section could have been so much shorter because we don't need that much mythology. Mm-hmm. And it does complicate it. Like, I mean, I probably would have been happy if um, she never turned into this monster at all and instead, yeah. like, was turning into the library policeman, you mm-hmm. know? like That's what it, I expected. Yeah, if it could have been... <laughs> that simple i wish i wish that the villain the main villain was the library policeman yeah or even if you just simplify it to the point of like okay she's she's a librarian she feeds out she takes the four or she can um control people's fears and she actually is really mad about you not returning your books on time you know what i mean like i think Mm -hmm. when it gets into all this other stuff it just gets like i I just think simple is better than I, i can't think of a outside of maybe like salem's lot or something I can't think of a of a king book where he doesn't over explain the logistics of the mythology. See, he does it in The Shining. He, I mean, it's just it's like he can't help himself. I, um, so so I really like her a lot, but it's toward the end. I, I was getting I was almost getting kind of confused in that final library sequence because mm-hmm. like, what's going on here? Yeah. Is this the library policeman? Is it her or what? And I, I thought the library policeman that first scene where he he, he comes Sam. into mm. uh, Sam's house is really freaky. Really and actually, good. I, I actually like the library policeman, um, which I guess is kind of Ardelia, um, just appearance wise and everything else. I like that's this kind of exaggerated version of the um, the guy who who molested Dave when he was, or, or sorry, Sam when he was a kid, like like because he was blind, right? And then yep. so the library policeman has these dark eyes with just little pinholes in the middle. I, I was almost picturing. Uh, Judge Doom from Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yes. I like Ardelia. I just think it's a, another case of overexplanation in a book that already has way too much overexplanation. I'm still very curious why she picked, like, how did she know to pick 
Sam? Like, right. how does she know to be there when Sam came? Right. That's a good That's question. Because right, she's technically not actually in the library, right? Because right. it's like this hallucination or this this glamour. Was there kind a of cycle? Thing. Yeah, because he like walked into the the library he walked into is the one from 20, 30 years right. ago Saint or Louis, whatever. Yeah. yeah. It's, Which, it's almost weird. It's like the more King explains, the more confusing it gets. Yeah. You know, that's why I think it's better for that. Yeah. Hello. Bill Band here from the All 80s Movies Podcast to tell you about Factor Meals. Eating better is easy with Factor's delicious, ready-to-eat meals. Every fresh, never-frozen meal is chef-crafted, dietitian-approved, and ready to go in just two minutes. You'll have over 35 different options to choose from every week, including Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Also, there are more than 60 add-ons to help you stay fueled up and feeling good all day long. Get as much or as little as you need by choosing your meals every week. Plus, you can pause or reschedule your deliveries anytime. We've done the math. Factor is less expensive than takeout, and every meal is dietitian approved to be nutritious and delicious. What are you waiting for? Get started today and get after your goals. Head to factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 and use code 80smovies50 to get 50% off. That's code 80smovies50 at factormeals.com slash 80smovies50 to get your 50% off today. Yeah, well, uh, that part was kind of miserable. So I think it's good for us to move on to misery, our section where we talk about things that, you know what? Maybe we didn't like it so much. She, she died. She just slipped away. Slipped away? Slipped away? All right, I've got one that I want to say straight away. This isn't in chronological order, but it kind of sums up when I always get really, really annoyed at King. Um, and it's when on page 566, when he's fighting with the library policeman oh with ardelia and, and sam says try me ardelia let's rock and roll <laughs> and then but she cuts him off by beating him up but i still just think the whole concept of of facing down you're a normal dude facing down this like shrieking demon and you're gonna say let's rock and roll that would not be the first thing that came come about. on dude <laughs> Come hey man, on. 9-11, those guys said, let's roll. <laughs> uh, good point, Dan. Uh, let's no, move I'm on. Sorry, I'm sorry. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, anybody else have moments of misery that they want to share? Let me, let me find. If you got one, I should go ahead because I'm, I'm, I just cracked open my, uh, uh, my book. I'm see. trying to find. I've got one right here. Yeah. Page 403. Yeah, uh, this is like Sam maybe showing his maleness a little bit, uh, like you said earlier, Aisha. Uh, so when he's, he's uh, talking to Ardelia in the library, um, he says... She put her left hand out, a small hand, as plump and round as the rest of her, with perfect unstudied confidence. He looked at the third finger and saw it was ringless. She wasn't Mrs. Lortz after all. The fact of her spinsterhood struck him as utterly typical, utterly small town, almost a caricature, really. Like, come on, dude. Yeah. Why'd you get so judgmental? All of a sudden? I feel like I was I, I remember that point. I was like, so are you going after librarians? Because yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, that's good. not that I'm a librarian, but I do know people. Are. I just thought yeah. that was that was a really odd moment where I'm like, why are you shaming her for not being married? <laughs> this is kind of a, a king staple at this point. He, I know. I know at some point he says, Naomi, mean, that good legs or nice legs. I just, just that phrase always comes up. Also, uh. I, I know we talked on it. I just want to read that paragraph about Robert uh, McCammon because it also ties into 
the movie we just talked about on uh, on Halloween. So oh, yeah, and, and I think just hearing this out loud also just drives home how how dumb this sounds, especially com- especially coming from Ardelia, who's like a fucking ghost demon creature thing. Like why she knows all this. Okay, okay, this is her talking to Sam when they first meet. According to the poll, last summer's favorite movie among the children was A Nightmare on Elm Street, Part 5. Their favorite rock group is called Guns N' Roses. The runner-up was something called Ozzy Osbourne, who I understand has a reputation for biting the heads off live animals during his concerts. Their favorite novel was a paperback original called Swan Song. It's a horror novel by a man named Robert McCannon. We can't keep it in stock, Sam. They read new copy to rags in weeks. I read a copy, but it just goes on and on. And I think she actually says... Oh, God. And he does this every book, too. It drives me crazy. Um, I have never myself seen any of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. I have never heard of Ozzy Osbourne record and have no desire to do so, nor to read a novel by Robert McCammon, Stephen King, or B.C. Andrews. It's Awful. just like... Awful. Man, yeah. dropping himself. What are you doing, dude? <laughs> Boy. Yeah, I hate that section. It's so bizarre. Um, also, I like that she says... the a full A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5 <laughs> <laughs> she's a librarian she's gonna do her job and say the full title <laughs> it would be funny if she said A Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5 The Dream Child <laughs> <laughs> I guess for me too like this sort of relates to my let's rock kind of moment is this like when it, when King sort of makes his confrontations like almost too precious like too cute like where um because like when he has the library policeman and he got the books like he went and bought them from another town or whatever and then he comes in with the books and he's like screaming take the books take them <laughs> yeah i've repaid my i've paid my due you know because and he puts like money in it or something yeah, I, i've paid my fine it's like so silly i feel like if i was in the room as that happened i would have giggled yeah. just a little bit it would have been a serious <laughs> moment but i would have giggled i know and then like um and then like there's another and then there's another part later where sam like calls her he's like here i've got something for you bitch i brought it all the way from east st louis <laughs> And then he puts the the sticky ball of red licorice into the end of her proboscis. It's like it just like there's a moment in um I've I've know I've talked to you about this Dan at the end of Desperation, which we'll eventually get to, where like it's such a cool scene and I'm really into it. But then he adds this like one liner that totally ruins it. You know that like and I always say I hate like cheeky king like or like ghosts who wisecrack is like Wise never crack. something I'm into. Yeah, <laughs> it's never the, something I'm into. Pennywise on it we talked about Pennywise where. where the werewolf has that Letterman jacket that has like (laughs) all that text on the back. Yeah. It's so silly. Uh, Any other miserable moments for you guys? You guys kind of covered mine. (laughs) I mean, general scheme of things. Most of my stuff is like pound cake and cemetery. I hear you. Um, Well, (laughs) before we get there though, we've got to fire up our word processor Mm. of the gods. Hello, welcome to Word Processor of the Gods, the section where we read uh, passages that we thought, hey, that was some pretty good writing. And uh, so does anyone have anyone uh, any sections offhand that they would like to read and highlight? Uh, I have one. So Bring it. This is in, I don't know what chapter it is, but it's page 465, or no, sorry, 485 in the Signet version. Uh, and this is when um, our Delia Lord's story is finally being told. Let me see if I can find exactly where I was. So back then I locked up. Okay, sorry y'all. It's oh, it's hard all to good. like find things. Oh yeah, just take in them. In my big a. I've got a really short one. If, Go ahead, uh, bring it. Yeah. Um, and once again, I alluded to this before, but I just want to read it out loud because I 
we don't talk about King's comedy quite so much in War Processor of the Gods. I feel like it usually it goes to Pound Cake because it's sometimes not <laughs> it's good. usually not great. <laughs> but but this is actually a moment that it made me like actually LOL. A few of Sam's internal monologue moments did, but it's it's right when Sam goes to the library. It's right before we get to all the the Nightmare on Elm Street Part Five, the Dream Child. Uh, but so Sam arrives at the library and says. Sam had gone by the library hundreds of times during his years in Junction City, but this was the first time he had really looked at it, and he discovered a rather amazing thing. He hated the place on site. I don't know. I think that, that like, <laughs> cracks me up. And also, once again, that it like once you find out why he doesn't like the library, there's an actual reason for it. It actually makes that line a little bit sadder, you know? So Yeah, totally. Yeah, it, yeah I figured I'd, I'd do a little uh, lighthearted uh wpg for processor of the gods awesome uh aisha what you got so this is uh dave talking or when he's doing the story and telling them basically about ardelia and he's speaking with sarah and basically he says i know but there there can't be many things that have seen the things there can't be many that have seen the things i have or done what i've had i've done I did the best I could, though. Little by little, I did the best I could. I set my house in order, but those things I saw and did back then, those I never told, not to any person, not to no man's God. I found a room in the basement of my heart, and I put those things in that room, and then I locked the door. And it's like that kind of idea of time and repression of memories and things like that. So I kind of thought that was a really big tie-in to, because this is after, or this is before we find out what Sam went through himself so i kind of almost felt like this was a like precursor of like these things that Mm -hmm. you try to hold on to try to close off they come back taking a darker tone everyone sorry no but i really liked kind of like i mean i think that was the quickest or the shortest but most meaningful way to say that idea yeah that's cool i i have a similar one to you dan and it was just sort of a funny uh moment that I don't know. I, this is the kind of stuff we usually don't highlight, but I thought that there was sort of a fun character named Mary Vassar that they introduced. And this was a woman that Sam called. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember where exactly she. Oh, she's like uh, his house cleaner. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just thought this section was kind of charming um, and it made me laugh. So uh, he says, Mary was one of those unfortunate human beings who have been born under a bad sign and live in their own dark cloud of doom as premonition. The Mary Vassars of the world believe that there are, are a great many large black sailors dangling three stories above a great many sidewalks held by fraying cables waiting for a destiny to carry the doom faded into the drop zone if not a safe then a drunk driver if not a drunk driver a tidal wave in Iowa yes in Iowa if not a tidal wave a meteorite Mary Vassar was one of those afflicted folks who always want to know if something is wrong when you call them on the phone <laughs> which I totally I understand <laughs> that's like my mom and so uh, but then and then I love just like the chat that they have and when um uh and she, and she, he's asking her about Dave and she's like, he came to get the papers. Was I wrong to let him in? He's been coming for years. And I thought, and he's like, not at all. I just saw that they were gone. And I thought I'd check that. And she's like, you've never checked before. Is he all right? Has something happened to Dave? It just made me laugh. Cause I'm like, it's like a really, it's a fun moment where King takes a really small character and sketches like a really fun sort of portrait of them, uh, very quickly in a fun little scene. So nice little moment there. Um, any others that you guys want to share? I have one more, yeah. and it was um, with Doreen McGill, the woman who worked at the newspaper. Uh, the newspaper, and as Sam's going down to the basement where they keep all the, uh, was it the old film? Mm-hmm. And so he starts freaking out, and she just offhandedly, after the the long description he's given about this Doreen person, she just kind of offhandedly goes, "That's the morgue." She said, pointing. This was clearly a lady who pointed every chance she got. You only have to. The morgue, Sam asked, turning toward her. His heart had begun to knock nastily against his his ribs. Morgue? 
Doreen McGill laughed. Everyone says it just like that. It's awful, isn't it? But that's what we call, they call it. Some silly newspaper tradition, I guess. Don't worry, Mr. Peebles. There are no bodies down there. Just reels and reels of microfilm. Mm-hmm. And it's just like this this little lady who's trying to make a joke and she has no idea like this outer <laughs> thing is going on. And she's like, this is the morgue. And I just thought it was kind of a funny offhand. Like, Yeah, I like that too. Um, cool. Well, let's move on uh, to our next section, uh, which has the window blowing. The uh, cemetery gates are creaking. It is time to venture into a place we like to call the cemetery. What's the bottom of the truth? Well, sometimes that is better. The person you put up there ain't the person that comes back. It may look like that person, but it ain't that person. Because whatever lives in the ground beyond that cemetery ain't human at all. Yes, it is the cemetery. It is the parts of the book that we found utterly horrific. And I'll start just with a very brief one. Um, I love sort of the description of the uh, posters that were on the wall in the in the library and the way that Sam sort of looks at. Uh, it's in the children's library and the posters that are in the children's library, he looks at them and he kind of finds them to be these uh, like really unnerving and unsettling to be around children. And it reminds me, as does parts of the Sundog, it sort of reminds me of like creepypasta culture where it's that whole kind of culture where, uh, you know, a lot of it has to do as in Sundog we'll talk about, but it's like, it has to do with technology and with film and things like that. But here it's sort of that unnerving idea of, um, you know, memory and asking yourself, was it always this creepy? Like, were these kind of posters there when I was a child and how did I react to them? Uh, and he has that moment where he looks at the library policeman on the poster and he says, like, I feel like I've seen him before. And the way that it's written is just really spooky to me. So uh, what other moments did you guys have? To build off of the posters when, uh, what's his name, Dave is telling about the ones he drew and the one, was it Steamroll Willie mm-hmm. or whatever? Yeah. And like how graphic, I was like, that kind of got me because in my head I'm imagining like this detailed, intricate painting being in the library for kids to see. That that would be traumatizing a small child saying that. Yeah, seriously. Uh, what about you, Dan? Yeah, I actually found there was a lot of cemetery in this book for, or in this novella. I mean, for all the issues I have with it, I I do think the the supernatural aspects in it were actually pretty scary. I think it's the first time we've gotten something this unnerving since it. Um, we've talked about it before, but yeah, the library policeman going into Sam's house to me is scary for many reasons. A because Sam thinks it's a friendly presence at first. Yeah. Um, and I like how he just kind of lets him in. There, there's not a lot of buildup. It just kind of happens, which that's always freaky to me in horror because I think sometimes we do such long buildups and sometimes it's just scary to have the thing come out of nowhere. It's also in broad daylight, which that's like, I don't think we get enough of that, those kinds of scenes, both in King horror books and others. Like just, it's the, it's, it's Sam's house. It's supposed to be this really peaceful place. There are supposed to be neighbors around all this and this. And I, and it's also because the library policeman humiliates him. It's not just it's this mm-hmm. big freaky thing with teeth and, and eyes and whatever else that's tall. Mm-hmm. It actually like embarrasses Sam and then the lisp. And once again, it King keeps building on that because once you discover what the library policeman actually is. So that was a really terrifying sequence um, for me. And also because he foreshadows it on the posters. And then I actually, um, I don't know, I, I want to see what you two think about this. I actually, even, even though I think Ardelia is a little too similar to Pennywise and what she needs and what her 
her once are. I did think that mosquito form of her was really freaky, like the pinched eyes and the proboscis. Did, did you two like that? I don't know. I, I, I thought that was pretty creepy, but I can see yeah. how it could also be silly. It's a very vivid description in ways that 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 have resonated with me more than other king monsters yeah. i would say yeah, yeah. It, is, it is weird because I, th- I think the more he explained with her the more she felt like pennywise and also like i don't know who, who knows maybe she's supposed to to be the um the same creature as pennywise which could also be cool but because th- that's never confirmed either and we just get these vague details just you know be, that it it takes away from that a little bit but in the actual like just the physicality of ardelia it really freaked me out i kept thinking of um I can't even remember the context, but in Billy Beetlejuice, where um, the Alec Baldwin and uh, where oh, yeah, their faces, they their faces become, out, yeah, oh, yeah. They their faces out. That's what I kept thinking of, mm-hmm. um, and just that's like a I, you know, obviously it's being done to a kid, so that was really freaky to me. So yeah, I one th- I don't know should the the big scene the. Um, Sam's traumatic scene. Should we talk about that here? Or I feel weird talking about it in pound cake, but maybe it's good to also talk about that. Uh, I think we can talk about it here yeah. before we get there though. I just want to read us because I'm, I'm, I have sure, a section, I have a section yeah. up that I think touches on what you were saying, Dan, about um, like about the description of Ordelia. And I really like, I have this in my cemetery as well. And there's a couple of good descriptions here that I think really work. Uh, and so this is when he's encountered Ordelia and she has turned into the monster in the library. Uh, so the white thing's entire plastic body now yearned towards the proboscis. It fed itself, it fed itself into itself, and the proboscis elongated. The creature became a single tube-shaped thing. The rest of its body hanging as useless and forgotten as that sack below its neck had hung. All its vitality was invested in the horn of flesh, the conduit through which it would suck Sam's vitality and the essence into itself. And it was nice. The proboscis slipped gently up Sam's legs, pressed briefly against his groin, then rose higher, caressing his belly. Sam fell on his knees to give it access to his face. He felt his eyes sting briefly and pleasantly as some fluid, not tears, this was thicker than tears, began to ooze from them. The proboscis closed in on his eyes. He could see a pink petal of flesh opening and closing hungrily inside there. Each time it opened, it revealed a deeper darkness beyond. Then it clenched, forming a hole in the petal, a tube within a tube, and it slipped with sensual slowness slowness across his lip and cheek towards that sticky outflow misshapen dark blue eyes gazed at him hungrily i thought that was a very sort of cool evocative freaky gross kind of section yeah yeah i gotta give uh, king credit also for he always depicts monsters eating things really creepily yeah Yeah. he always always gets to how impulsive it is and how much they enjoy it and how it's almost very instinctual. Like he, he, they almost feel like animals or something. You know, I, I, I always enjoy a good uh, devouring. Yeah, scene. I was gonna say I was cringing as you were reading that because <laughs> I remember too, like when he talks about the pink chunks that come out of. Yep. And for, if you know me, like I, anything with eyes uh-huh. is is my my point where I can't go. <laughs> like <laughs> eyes are just not mm, for me. In sort of a funny pound or cemetery, because it, it just grosses me out. Was him balling up the licorice? Mm. And like taking all the licorice and putting and mashing it in his hand and making it into a ball. I think it's kind of silly in a way, like the idea that he has this intuition to go do that. That to me is something in Sundog too, about like this whole idea of intuition. Mm -hmm. It's it's to me like kind of just lazy writing. And, uh, and I think like, that's where I kind of talked earlier about this whole idea of perspiration, like just got to get there. You know, I have this idea and I just got to get there. So, but the thing that, um, but I also, I find myself sort of viscerally grossed out 
about when he's mm-hmm. rolling up the uh, the licorice in his hands, and it talks about how the dye from the it, it is all, all over and sticky hands. all over yeah. his hands. That's just a very visceral, gross image to me. Um, but yeah, uh, so yeah, why don't we move on and talk about sort of the um, <laughs> the most memorable section the the- <laughs> of this book? Yeah, the elephant in the room here. So basically, um, to set it up. Uh, you know, this whole time we've been building towards uh, memories have been played out. They pop up in Sam's head as he encounters certain things. And uh, a lot of times it's somebody saying, I'm a police man, you know, mm-hmm. and it's uh, somebody with a lisp. And you can kind of get the vibe. Like you said, Aisha, you started seeing the signs pretty early that this was leading towards an abuse narrative. Mm-hmm. And so um, and I think that that is that is there. And so I guess for me. Uh, because what happens, and I'm not going to read any sections from it or mm. dig too deep into it, but basically Sam recounts a moment when he was a child and he was returning a late library book and he was uh, pulled aside by a man in front of the library who was, uh, and I do like Dan too that you brought this up, that he looks very different than the library policeman that we see in the present, mm. where it's like uh, like the one in the present is sort of this like stone-like monstrous okay. tall, seven foot yeah. tall version that is is vaguely unhuman. And then here we see somebody who's really the way he's described is very disgusting and he's very like schlubby and um, clearly unwell. And, uh, and basically he pulls, he says that since his book is late, he needs to be punished. He pulls him along the side of the library Mm -hmm. and, uh, and like in some bushes and then uh, rapes him. And it's, you know, really visceral, really dark. And I guess my question, and I felt, I would say rereading this, I had a very similar reaction that I did when I was young. Obviously, um, I have more knowledge about this sort of thing now than I did. So the, it's not surprised so much. And I also knew that I was approaching this, um, in the narrative, but I remain, I know why I felt sick was because I feel like King, he really spends a lot of time on this Mm. and he really writes this in a way that uh, I guess, in my opinion, it could be read as almost irresponsible, you know, to write this sort of thing. What was that? I was going to say he didn't pull any punches with the way he wrote it. And it was when you read it, it's like it's basically exactly what you think it would be mm-hmm. and there is no like flower language around it even though he kind of it's like he danced around about talking about it and like he used words like a thing that is pushed up against me like he didn't really get into the exact thing and it was all from the perspective of a child how they would interpret this as but you know exactly what's happening and it's like both sickening and then you and this kind of goes back to when we were talking about things that we enjoyed about his writing because he drops little hints all throughout the story that mm-hmm. lead up to this, but that it's little by little, like when you, he sees or he goes to the library and he kind of like smells the licorice smell. Yeah. And it used to be something that he loved. Yeah. And now he can't even be around it. Mm-hmm. These little hints and things like that. And that scene. Yeah. I was on, I told you I was on the train <laughs> and I had to stop and put the book away. Cause I like, I felt a lot of emotions yeah. for just like understanding what that child has gone through. Yeah. How do you feel about it, Dan? Yeah, it's it's interesting. I mean, you said that how this is the most infamous scene from the book. I mean, in many ways, I feel like it's all that this novella is really uh, known for, which I think is maybe a bit unfair. Um, sure. I had seen this scene included in a lot of, oh, King's like worst sex scenes or worst depictions of sex lists. It, like, you know, they put it in there with the, the gun rape from the stand. And sure. uh, 
this really horrible short, short story from Nightmares and Dreamscapes called um, Dedication and oh, yeah, the, the, the kid orgy scene from It and all this. And I have to be honest, when I was when I read it, I was surprised that it was held in that low regard. And I, don't get me wrong, I could totally see how it wouldn't be for everyone. And, and especially if you're a victim of abuse, I could see how this would feel irresponsible. But if the story is examining childhood trauma and why it might be repressed and how that ties into fear as an adult and how we go about our lives as adults, I, I think the scene is written kind of how it needs yeah. to be. Don't get me wrong. That's exactly why yeah. like, it yeah. struck it struck you. Or it, stri- it strikes you, but at the same time, it's not like graphic and gratuitous in how exactly. it does it. Because I was talking to my sister about the idea of rape scenes and culture of just like watching television mm-hmm. and how it's progressed over time or how certain things don't really show you. They just allude to like the attacker and you only see like the butt and then it pans away or you just hear the sounds and grunting like we he like we talk about it but don't talk about it we dance around the subject and he did it in a way that it was like he pulled no punches there was no mistaking what was going on but it wasn't graphic or gratuitous like i thought that was probably one of the best written parts in this particular mm-hmm. story interesting but in the way that it was it was well written from a child's perspective and like yeah. not being too much i mean some people i can see take it as being child pornography or whatever mm-hmm. but i mean for the storyline that we're trying to tell. Yeah. Yeah. I did some yeah. research online. Uh, I just kind of, I, when I was Googling library policemen and seeing sort of what people were saying about it, um, there's a lot of Reddit threads like, and people or like King fan threads where people are like, I just read this scene. I need to talk to somebody <laughs> about it. And it's interesting to see the different reactions people have. Cause a lot of people, you know, they echoed sort of your guys's sentiments and like, well, it, it serves the story. It is there in service of the story. But then there's other people that was like, I stopped reading King after this because mm. it was too much. It was, uh, it was unnecessary, you know? And, and I find myself personally falling sort of in between a little bit. I do. Th- and I think the writing is really good. And I do think that I agree that it, it speaks to, it is filtered through a child's perspective, which I think is important. Uh, there are moments of confusion. Like there's a lot of confusion in what's actually happening to him, which I think is really powerful and unnerving and um, visceral. Uh, but at the same time, it's like, it's, it's the description of the pain. Mm. And that's where I wonder if I, if it needs to go that far, like, because to me, it, it, it makes me and that's the question is I'm not necessarily saying I don't like it, but at the, I wonder sometimes if it's like I, if I could get the point without the mm. the lingering on the the vivid descriptions of the uh, like tactile experience. Right. You know what I mean? It's a hard, it's a hard subject to dance around because yeah. I think sometimes people ignore it because they don't have to deal with that and yeah. because they take the like the the soft flowery way out yeah um but also it's important like who's talking about this particular thing right maybe that's kind of where a lot of people they may not feel it or know it exactly but maybe that's where they're coming from is like who's this person writing about this experience yeah um but it's a delicate subject but it also can't be ignored it's it's just a line it's this yeah. weird line that you kind of have to cross sometimes and you kind of have to yeah. No, I think that's a good point. And I think that it's good to talk about it with like, I, this is the conversation mm-hmm. I wish I could have had with my dad when I was young. Right. Yeah. Now, if he did this in every story, I'd be like, King, we need to sit down yeah. and talk. But that's <laughs> the thing is it is an yeah. outlier in yeah. his work. Like, I think and that's why it stands out to me so mm-hmm. much because he doesn't write um, sexual violence like this. Well, 
at least he hasn't previously. Once we get to Rose Matter, that's yeah. really, really okay, hard. No, I, <laughs> I don't <laughs> know. If I can. Yeah, that's a it's tough read because that book is all about uh, spousal abuse. And mm-hmm. um, it's because he was basically this was sort of one of the earliest instances. This became a running theme. Like you actually said, like if he was writing about this in every story, uh it would be hard. And the thing is, he doesn't do it in every story, but uh, in Gerald's game and in Rose Matter and to a degree in Dolores Claiborne, it's been years since I've read it. So I can't remember how impactful it is. But this was an era where King really wanted to write from female perspectives and he wanted to write about violence against women as a plague, um, you know, and he frames it. He wanted to frame domestic abuse and sexual violence through the lens of horror uh, as a means of of, you know, um, demonizing it and mm-hmm. shining a light on it. Because especially in Rose Matter, it's, uh, you know, her husband who is an abuser is a cop who is protected by people, Other. which, you know, <laughs> resonates in our culture today, mm-hmm. where figures in power are protected um, in these instances. Yeah. And they, uh, you know, they operate cultures of fear where you're not allowed to say anything to them because they operate with right. power. And I we see that. that too in Gerald's game and, um, and in uh, Dolores Claiborne to a degree. Uh, and they're all kind of about stories of, of women, you know, rising above this abuse. And so I feel like this is an interesting precursor to clearly something that was on King's mind at this time. Okay. And uh, and the ways that, you know, he wanted to write about sexual violence. And that uh, and so that's going to be it's kind of a it's it's a scary place for the podcast yeah. to be moving into. Yeah, no, we don't have to go. It's just it's interesting, too. It's nice to come in and get context to because I don't always have the history sure. yeah. of like what mindset he's writing in when he does that. So I'm, I'm curious yeah, we'll kind see. of what sparked that. But. I think uh, I think as we move into these next books, we'll be we'll be careful about uh, making sure that nobody is 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 consuming too much of this too aggressively, because this is stuff <laughs> that <a> you don't <laughs> want to be drowning in it. You know what yeah. I mean? But it's it's an important part of where King's work was moving into at this time. So but no, those are interesting perspectives. What other thoughts do you have on this scene, Dan? Um, I, I'm thinking actually a little bit about what Aisha said about how it's, it's not overwritten. It doesn't have flowery language or anything. And I think that stands out all the more in a book, in a collection like four past midnight, where there's so much of the rest of it that's overwritten and kind of, like you said, that perspiration and him trying to reach the finish line. Whereas with this to me anyway, I think that it, it, its strength gets illustrated by that, by its sparseness and by like, it, it feels like he took care. Um, and yeah, I mean, the, they're, and I'm sure we'll get into this with these, these later books. Um, you know, there's all sorts of arguments to be had about like, well, who can write about what and has King gone through something like this? And if not, is it his place to write about this or write about violence against women? And like you were saying, I I think that the line is just going to be different for every single person who reads it, you know? And I I think that's just like something to respect that I I think, I I think everyone is going to have their, their line for what they can and can't, can't read and can't consume. Um, for me, for me, this was really powerful. And, um, I actually think he took a lot of care and it was really effective because the story is about this very thing. Um, that being said, there are other books where I don't feel like I wasn't on the it episode where they talked about the child orgy, Mm. you know, that that for me is a line. (laughs) All right, go home now, you know, but, um, that was uh, one we made sure we had, uh, you and Mel on for, we were like, (laughs) we need a lot of perspectives on this one. Um, so yeah, no, those, that's all really interesting. And I think, um, and I think uh, a really great way of looking at it. And, um, 
Yeah, but it's definitely a cemetery. It's definitely a very scary moment. I think the part that really lingers with me, too, that I don't remember from when I was young that uh, that really got me on this reread was the idea of the like the dirt and the sticks and the mulch, you know, Mm. Um, because his pants got pulled down and then they had gotten in his underwear. And then when he pulled them back up, he could still feel it in his pants. That to me was like a really small detail that you would remember, like, you know, in in the aftermath of such a, a moment. And it's like it's the small moments it's like the small pain mixed with the obviously much larger pain and it's it's how those two sort of mingle together that's really unnerving so it broke my heart when the the janitor turned away and didn't see him yeah i was like look at Uh, him yeah Yeah, that's so so scary um well i think We've allowed ourselves at this point to lighten the mood a little bit. Uh, we've, we're all a little bit hungry, so we're going to have a healthy serving of pound cake. After all you've been taught, everyone in bad mama, everything in the sin. Come to your closet and pray. Ask to be forgiven. He's a nice boy, Mom. You like him. You really like him, Mama. Pound Cake, if you're unfamiliar, is the section of the podcast where we talk about things that were maybe made us laugh in ways that King didn't want us to laugh. Um, In this section, we don't just cover some of his lesser good sex writing. We also cover bad jokes, uh, weird descriptions, things that just made us kind of, um, you know, wonder what the hell was he thinking in this moment. So, uh, Dan, you have one that I know you want to share and I want to hear it. I, I, I don't know why it's, it's funny too, because it's during that, that huge Dave monologue where we yeah. discover the root of what's going on, but he's talking about being attracted to Ardelia when he's a young man. And he, he, he goes on and on about how horny he is like for a long time. <laughs> yeah. And I, I'm always a sucker for when King uses the word horny, which is a lot. Like it's always funny <laughs> to me. Cause, and so Dave, Dave actually says the, the, the line is, Oh, I was horny enough to rape the Statue yeah. of Liberty. And that's just Jesus. Such, like, had that now. <laughs> yeah, it's such a bizarre A. Why does he have to say the word rape? B, why the Statue of Liberty? Right. Like it was just so funny to me. Like I I couldn't and it, it was it almost felt like it was supposed to be this like old chestnut of a line, but it was just really bizarre. And so I, I couldn't figure out where he came up with it, but yeah, I, I don't know if you two flagged that line as well. Oh, oh yeah. I flagged it. Oh yeah. <laughs> I think it's, I think that's sort of the unavoidable one. Uh, Aisha, any, any ones that you want to point out? I had one again from the Ardelia Dave story. Uh, <laughs> and this one was where he was, uh, let's see where Ardelia basically was angry and talking to him about the, I think one of the guys who just passed that she had murdered and she, ba- she turns to him and says, stop talking. You dumb, you damn souse, souse. How do you say oh, that? Souse. Souse. Okay. You damn souse. She said, and stick it in me. Whatever else are you good for? <laughs> I was like, okay. <laughs> uh, I was like, just straight to the point. Like your only service is a penis. So <laughs> speaking of penises, um, I think sort of in the Jahoobies category uh, on page 390, <laughs> Literally two pages in, we get somebody calling a penis a wing wang. Yeah, <laughs> which is just like when King has those. Like, do you know what I? How uh, old are we? Do you know what I mean when I say jahoobies? No, and uh, both in <laughs> Carrie and in Salem's Lot, two books in a row, he has a character call a woman's breast jahoobies, and it is. In- 
Where does he get these from? I no clue. I, I think it's like this old Maine folksiness that it's so funny to me. And <laughs> he, he says a lot, a lot of, is it? Uh, yeah. I think he actually says, oh, the finest pair of Jehoobies you could ever clap an eye to. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> so weird. Oh, man. Um, yeah, I think it's just these like rural Maine folksisms. I don't know. It's really, it's, yeah. it's really funny, though. Yeah, it always cracks me up in there. <laughs> Speaking of folksisms, there's a moment on page 420 that I just thought was really strange. Range where um where it's Sam and Naomi talking and Sam it's like it's just such like a, a weird white knight like uh male feminist kind of moment when he's like he's talking to Naomi and he's like Naomi my dear girl <laughs> it's like who says that <laughs> when did he, didn't he also keep saying ohms all the time not the full homes. yeah ohms. He just ohms and I was like why that is, is weird that she I guarantee she did not want to be called that yeah. also on page 407 I just love this uh uh, he's talking to Mrs. Lortz, and I feel like there's a couple moments where he makes like really weird, like filthy jokes in his head while he's talking to her. But uh, so, so she's saying she's suggesting books to him, and she goes, "I suggest you go directly to the middle section. Oh, the it, section within the book, which is called Lively Speaking. There you will find jokes and stories divided into three categories: easing them in, softening them up, and finishing them off. <laughs> Sounds like a manual for gigolos. <laughs> thought but did not say." And it's like gigolos. Like I mean, I get that that was more of a phrase yeah. at the time, but That's it's cute. it's a very funny phrase to me. Um, so any other any other slices of pound cake you guys want to share? Oh, I enjoy a good fart reference every now and again. <laughs> I think he was referring to I forgot a Norm as the police officer or whatever, and he's like he's not worth a fart in a windstorm. And I was like, I I don't know why I like that phrase, but I feel like I want to use that. Like, it made me laugh, and I want to use that when I describe people. Not worth a fart in a windstorm. Yep. Um, I have a line here. Okay, I just want to say that my note, I wrote on page 498, killed with fucking. <laughs> F-U-C-K-I-N. But I don't... I forgot what that was from, I, I, know, I know, I don't remember. That... I have it. I have the page up, and I'm going to see if I can find it. Uh, and I don't know if that's the actual line or if that's how I interpreted the line. <laughs> But uh, Dan, do you have any? I think he was killed with fucking. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, there it is. Me, I was drunk and half killed with fucking. <laughs> That's, That's such a was. weird phrase. I like uh, he's like half, like half killed. Like oh, I'm so worn out. Like, oh, <laughs> We've all been there, right? No. Uh, did you have any others, Dan? I, th- I mean, there's there. I, I think you guys covered all the ones. Yeah, I just want to get to the. I want to make sure I claim the Statue of Liberty. That was just really funny. Yeah. Oh, this part made me laugh too. On page five twenty-seven, uh, Dave says. Um, <laughs> Like Sam laughed uneasily. I'm sure she was a firecracker 30 years ago, he said, but the lady has aged. She's not really not. She's really not my type. And Dave goes, I guess you don't understand after all. She doesn't want to fuck you, Sam. She wants to be you. And like, right. fuck is italicized. <laughs> it's very funny to me. King, King, King does not like, I mean, it's funny. I think in his own life, he, he seems actually like a good husband and not, not too concerned with, superficiality but he man he hates in his books it's like women getting older women gaining weight it's like god god <laughs> forbid imagine god forbid. what their like bedroom talk is <laughs> oh know? god i don't even want to think about it i just yeah, Rod rothman always does the, the tabby, <laughs> tabby. <laughs> uh i think that we have had our fill of pound cake our bellies are full up and i think we need to walk it off in a place we like to call king's dominion there's another world out there i know there is 
in King's Dominion, we discuss uh, connections to other King books. And it, we're in kind of a fun period because uh, King's at that point now where he's really not holding back on uh, blending his universes. But And he's also he's also at the point, though, where he likes to put himself in his own books, uh, i.e., as we mentioned earlier, Ardelia name-dropping Stephen King as different among different horror authors. But she also name-drops another fictional author from a King book. Did you catch this, Aisha? Didn't he talk about um, from Dark Half? There was they mentioned him briefly, or am I thinking in Sundog? Um, oh, I think they mention him in Sundog. Oh God! Uh, yeah, but uh, uh, Dan, did you catch it? Paul, Paul Sheldon. Paul right? Sheldon from Misery. Yeah, yeah. yeah the romance novelist. Uh, any other King's Dominion that you guys noticed? I mean, just the, well, I mean, I know we touched on it already. I feel like this whole idea of the energy vampire, which could apply mm. to. Ardelia and Pennywise and the vampires from Salem's Lot and also the vampire the, who are the same vampires we meet eventually in a Larry King book that I won't spoil. Like, I, I feel like that he doesn't state that it's of the same species or anything, but I feel like that's just a theme that's starting to happen. I guess it wouldn't be the same creature as Pennywise because it comes from that little parasite thing at the end. Right. But I don't know. I just couldn't help but thinking of, of it the entire time. I think, me too. I'm trying to remember. It's tough because I'm re- like I'm rereading Tommy Knockers right now, which there's some Kings, a lot of Kings Dominion. That I'm trying to make sure I don't have anything written down from from that instead of this. But I think I think that's the only, that's the only outright one was the Paul Sheldon and and of course Stephen King himself getting getting mentioned. Uh, yeah, uh, there was I, a few uh, others that that I found, and there was one that I just thought was interesting. Uh, the way that Dave describes how. Ardelia has sort of that eye, the traveling eye that she can like follow oh, with. Yes, he that's, oh, yeah. that's a very Randall flag from the stand kind of oh. thing. Cause he can do uh, something sure. very similar. I'm not saying, you know, this is maybe a room two, three, seven, but, uh, and then I'm on a, uh, I found, um, sort of a, uh, a forum where somebody was like drawing different, uh, connections and another Randall flag references. The man Dave draws in all of his scary posters. He refers to as the dark man. Randall flag. <laughs> they put like with two, two, two exclamation points in a question yeah, mark. And, uh, and then, um, and then another one that they have that made me laugh. Dirty Dave has a scary scene in a cornfield similar to children of the corn. <laughs> yeah. Oh, <laughs> wow. I mean, also the state, this idea of the, the cornfield, the Midwest cornfield being a place of horror, I think is, is something he, he keeps exploring. You know, yeah. I mean, even in a uh, secret window, secret garden right before this. And, uh, and then in the stand, there are scenes that take place in the corn. Corn is scary. Uh, this, scary. this one I actually really like, uh, it makes me laugh. Uh, <laughs> April 6th to eight to April 13th is a national library week. Add up six and 13. And what do you get? Uh, 19. 19. Well, the kind of old, yes. And it's true. Anyways, that's uh, those were the big ones. The big dominions here. Those just made me laugh because some of them were very silly, but yeah, uh, not too much there. So I think let's move on to our final thoughts. Dad, can we go now? You ready? Yeah, we've been ready for an hour. <laughs> okay, I'll be right there. He said that a half hour ago. Yeah, my dad's weird. He gets like that when he's writing. All right, it is time to offer up our bright red Pennywise Clown Nose rankings for the library policeman. Uh, Dan, why don't you kick us off? 
I'm going to give this a, a, a generous three and a half bright red Pennywise clown noses. We're going out of five, right? That's right. I'm just making sure. Okay, How long have you been on this podcast, Dan? <laughs> no, because on, on Halloween, they do, they do four, and I rated the fifth Nightmare on Elm Street movie thinking it was on scale of five, and I wouldn't <laughs> rate it lower. Anyway, it doesn't matter. Freddie only has four finger blades, because it's finger blades instead of <laughs> anyway, but he's got um, like a thumb, right? Too his finger. No, that's, he only had. You think he would, but he only has it on his four his four main fingers. Oh, I just. Yes. I, I, but he still has fingers, right? Five. Yeah, fingers. but no blades. Okay. Okay. Just fingers, so we can do it out of five. But anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> three and a half. Um, I, you know, there definitely some clunky exposition. I think all of these novellas in Four Pest Midnight are too long, but maybe it's just because I read it right after. Secret Window, Secret Garden, and Langoliers, which I I don't even want to say what I would give those those pieces of shit. <laughs> um, but no, I, think, I think this was like a welcome refresher for me. It was the first one that truly felt scary in the collection, and for for all its faults and its clumsiness, I do think he gets at some serious issues with repression and trauma, and also it's just scary to me. Like I like I said, there was actually a lot of cemetery in this for me, and it was the first King book I'd been really creeped out by in, in quite a while. So um, yeah, three and a half for me. Uh, Good to hear. Yeah. Uh, Aisha, how about you? You're slightly more generous than I. I was going to say three bright red Pennywise noses out of five. And uh, what would you say knocked it down from 3.5? You, the general just beginning slow start for me. Yeah. I mean, once we got into it, I liked it. I, yeah. But of course, I don't know. I don't have anything to compare to in this general book besides Sundog. Sure, sure. Um, Oh, well, I guess if I thinking with Sundown, eh, they're probably about the same in my head. <laughs> Spoiler yeah. alert. <laughs> yeah, three. Uh, okay, cool. I, I think I'm I think I'm going to go with Dan. I think I'm going to give it three and a half. I, uh, you know, I think that I don't think it's King's best story by any means. I think it, it it's probably my favorite story from this collection uh, because I guess I really it has an earnestness to it that I find very appealing that I feel like really represents the sort of vulnerable uh, state of sobriety that he was in at this time. And I think it really accomplishes what it's set out to do. Um, I feel like there's sort of a really clear message here. I think the mythology is clumsy, and I think maybe his lead up to the big reveals in this are are handled a little bit um, clumsily as well. But at the same time, I feel like we have an appealing lead character. Uh, I'm invested in the journey. It's so strange. And there are a lot of really genuinely freaky moments in it. And to me, it's kind of an outlier in King. And I feel like he's trying to do things here that he hasn't done in his previous work and that he's sort of inching towards with the work that he's going to be focusing on in the early 90s. And so um, I think that... It's not like a story I really want to read again, but it's one that if somebody was like, hey, what's the best novella in Four Past Midnight? I'd probably say The Library Policeman because yeah. it is memorable. You know, I remember yeah. it a lot better than I do any of the other ones in the collection. So so I think that averages out to what, like a 3.3 probably mm. somewhere around there. Uh, yeah, not bad. Right. Not bad. Not bad. Better than the Tommyknockers rating. though. <laughs> I uh, gave it a pretty good rating. <laughs> just so I'm saying. So uh, so please tune in next week. Uh, this was fun. And we're going to talk about a book that has a lot less trauma in it um, and a lot more dogs in it. And that is called The Sun Dog. And that is the last novel in Four Past Midnight. And it's been quite the journey sticking, uh, you guys sticking with us through it all. So please tune in next week for that. And in the meantime, uh, long days and, and pleasant, pleasant nights. Pleasant nights. That's right. I got some hot
Consequence Podcast Network.